Welcome to the Orchard. We are so glad you are here, whether you're joining us here in the building, online, or on the radio, however it is, we are glad that you are spending time with us today. Operation Christmas Child and Samaritan's Purse, you guys know how I feel about that. You know how we feel. In fact, I know how you feel because we had a goal of 700 boxes and we are over 900 as of today. So yes, praise God and thank you for all your work, all you've done. You know, one thing that we did in our household, and my, my kids aren't here so they don't need to hear this, you know, strangely enough, toy catalogs just didn't appear in the mail this year that they know of. Um, but what did appear is Samaritan's Purse Catalog, where you can go through and see how you can help everything from giving a hamster to a family, a goat to a family, anything overseas, water or whatever. And uh, we got to go through that. And it was interesting to see our children's perspectives on Christmas change as they went through a catalog of needs and where they could be involved. So that's a great thing for Christmas. In fact, Christmas is my most favorite time of the year. From Thanksgiving till January uh, 1st, I am, I am so happy. January 2nd is crippling, you know, depression, but we'll talk about that later. But between those days, I, I just love this season, the decorations. We, already, we had carols playing in our house a long time ago. We have the Christmas movies, already watched Vacation. Yeah, that's right. We, I, I just love Christmas. I like to go to the store and just walk the aisles. Not the aisles of toys, but the aisles of decorations and all this stuff. I love the, the sights and the smells. And even during Christmas, it seems there's a little extra grace and love people have for one another. And so because it's Christmas, I wanted to take a break from our John series. You know, we're, right now we're in the book of John, and we would be getting into the Garden of Gethsemane and the crucifixion around Christmas. And so I want to go into some Advent and some, some Christmas topics, and then in the spring we'll pick back up our John series. Today we're going to be looking at some people in the Christmas account. We're going to be looking at the Magi. We call them the wise men, the three wise men, the wise guys, right? We're going to be looking at them and what it means for us. So if you we can read on screen with me, actually this part's rather long, so I'm just going to read it through for us all. You can listen. Matthew 2 says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In, in, the, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet had written. But you, O Bethlehem, land in the land of Judah, you are by no means the least of the rulers of Judah. Out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people of Israel. Then Herod called the Magi in a secret meeting and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them on to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for this child, and as soon as you find him, report back to me, so that I may too go, go and worship him. After the Magi heard the king... They went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented them gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So there's, there's the story of the Magi, these, these wise men, these mysterious foreign visitors who have a celestial light that led them to a house where Jesus was. 
Uh, we have a, a, some more information on these guys, but most of that comes from legend in the 6th or 8th century, like we, what their names may have been. Now, we always assume there's three of them, right? But the Bible doesn't actually tell us there's three. We assume three because there's three gifts. But, you know, you've been to a party where there's always that one guy who just doesn't bring anything. I mean, there could have been that guy, or he brought a fruitcake, and they didn't, they didn't want to mention that. So we, 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 we don't know how many there were, but we'll go with three. We know um, one of them brought gold. Now, you know, they were probably pretty upset at this guy. He had gone over the spending limit. They all agreed when they give Jesus a present, there was a spending limit. But all this guy, he had to go and get the gold, which means there's the other two who brought frankincense and myrrh. And these two magi are the patron saints of essential oils. And it's so ambitious of them. They show up there at that house hoping they can get Mary on their team. Great move. So we, so we have these guys, they're traveling to see Jesus. They find him and they give him gifts. We call them wise men, and the Greek word is magas, which is the name the Persians and Babylonians give to their soothsayers, their sorcerers, their astrologers, and their pagan priests, which means these men are very well educated. They're spiritual men trained in pagan arts, pagan arts likely Persian spiritual practices. They uh, instructed others on how to worship in a way that probably didn't coincide with the way the Bible said. These were men who were raised and trained in Eastern theology and culture, highly educated, highly respected, and very well-resourced, wealthy. They don't know Jesus. They know of someone. They most likely don't worship the God of the Old Testament. They were elite spiritual people from Persia, spiritual people on a quest and here in Matthew 2, 2, it says, they ask this question, we find out about the quest, it says this, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? This is what they're here for. They traveled a great distance on this mission to find a king. In Luke's account, there's some interesting tidbits about the Magi. While they don't know the, um, Jesus' name, they don't know the prophecies about Jesus, they don't, they, there's something about Jesus they know that it seems even the, the Israelites and the Romans don't know. They have inside information, this star. They ask, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? Stop and think about that question. Because it makes me stop and ask one very important thing. Who is born a king? I did, did research on the empires of this time period. And kings weren't born kings. They captured the throne through violence most often. They kept the throne through violence. But let's say we have a sitting king. He would most likely have many wives, concubines, and many children. And if this king survived all the coups and all those things and grew older, at some point he would appoint a successor. Kings were appointed and crowned. In this stage of history, no one's born a king. They're born a prince, yes, but no one's born a king. But this king born in a manger, as we see in Luke, and he's different. He's already a king. He already, he already has a throne. He has a crown. Jesus left a throne in heaven, and upon arriving on earth, his kingdom was established. Jesus is already king. He has no need of an earthly throne. He has one. He has no need of an earthly crown. He has one. Born a king. You know, in Christmas, we have this nostalgic view of Jesus, a fleecy, you know, a fleecy baby that, that doesn't cry. And, and he did cry, um, but we need to remember that Jesus, even as a baby, was born king. 
In her arms, Mary holds a king. Even the earthly ruler of the Jews at this time, King Herod, King Herod wasn't born king of the Jews. He had to fight to capture it. And in around 37 BC, he kicked off the Herodian dynasty. So while Jesus was born king of the Jews, Herod had to connive and conquer to become king of the Jews. Well, more on Herod later. But let's go back to Matthew. He's about their mission. Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. They make it very clear the purpose for this mission. We want to worship the king of the Jews. But this is where it gets really awkward in the room. At that sentence, some tension enters the room. It gets sticky because they're here to worship somebody born king of the Jews, and who do they announce that to? The current king of the Jews. The sitting king of the Jews. How do you think that would land with Herod? Herod had conquered and connived his way into the title. Let me just tell you a little bit about Herod. He's called a madman. He's called a murderer. He murdered many of his own family. He murdered many rabbis and powerful people to get and keep his throne. One author said it this way about Herod. Herod is prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition. And these magi show up and go, yeah, we've seen a star and it's led us here. We're here to see the one born king of the Jews. And they're talking to the king of the Jews. Can you imagine if somebody just showed up to your door talking about the person who has your title and it's not you? Whatever your title would be. How do you think Herod dealt with this? Well, it, it, we find out. And Matthew tells us, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed. And all of Jerusalem with him. Herod, deeply disturbed, the Greek word here means to be agitated in your spirit, troubled deeply and greatly. Herod hears from these foreign dignitaries that a king, a new king of the Jews has been born and Herod doesn't want his throne taken from him. Of course not. He fought hard to gain this throne. He wasn't born a king. He, he had to work for it and kill for it and he's willing to continue to kill for it, to do whatever it takes. And here's someone in front of him telling him they have divine insight somehow that the king of the Jews has been born. Now, it also says all of Jerusalem was disturbed. Why would that be? Why, why would the people be disturbed as well? And as, if you've been through a, with us through the John series, then you have seen how every festival, every parable, in fact, the entire Old Testament points through time to someone. And the question is always, when is the Messiah coming? When is our king coming? Could this be the year the Messiah comes? Will he throw off the Roman rule? Well, will he rise up and establish his kingdom? That is the question. That is the hope on the people's minds. And, and here they, they have these foreigners show up and say, he's, born, he's been born. That news would have spread like wildfire that something is happening. Herod wants to know what to make of this. He doesn't know much about the Jewish religion, and so he calls an emergency meeting of people to help him. It says, Then Herod called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. These are the Hebrew Pharisees we've been seeing in John. These are the religious elite, the people who have the Old Testament memorized. If anyone knows any information on this, it's going to be these people. And he says, where's the Messiah going to be born? And knowing the prophecies, knowing the Bible, they know that Micah 5, which was written 500 years before this emergency meeting, they quote Micah 5. They say this. They go, well, in Bethlehem, in Judah, they replied, for this is what the prophet had written. 
But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people in Israel. So now we know who. It's the king of the Jews. And now we have a location. It's Bethlehem. And what's interesting for just a moment, if we pause, just, just pause, it's interesting to see how different people are responding to Jesus in this instance. And the first response I want to look at is that of Herod. It says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly, found out the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find this child, come back, report to me, so that I too may go and worship this new king of the Jews. He encourages them to continue on their mission because they obviously have insight that he doesn't have. Find the baby, come back and tell me about him because I'm going to worship him as well. Do you see the, the conniving heart of Herod? He doesn't want to worship this baby. You know what he wants? He, he will do anything to build and protect his own kingdom. You see, Herod's interest in Jesus isn't a pure one. He's looking for Jesus for his own kingdom purposes. Herod is looking for Jesus to further and build his own personal kingdom. When it comes to Jesus, I just want to ask the question, how many of us can be a bit like Herod? Now, I know you're thinking, well, that's a rough question, but, but let's look at this a little bit more. How many of us, our response to Jesus is sometimes motivated by our own self-interest? Herod was looking for Jesus to meet his own desires and needs. Oftentimes, we can be guilty of going to Jesus, pursuing Jesus, to fulfill our own desires, our own ends, our own needs. You see, we each have our own kingdom that we're building, each of us. Now it's not as big as Herod's, but it's ours, isn't it? It's our family. It's our business. It's our job. It's the things we care about. It's our recreation. It's our lifestyle. It's my hopes. It's my dreams. It's my kingdom. Like, we all have a kingdom that we are building. And our response to Jesus is often to invite Jesus to come and bless and build my kingdom. He's an addition. I add him onto my life to help my purposes, to help, to help my life grow bigger. For many well-meaning Christians, we seek Jesus to get something out of him. Jesus, I will do what you want and you protect my family. Jesus, I, I do the things that you like and, and you bless my finances. I'm looking for a Jesus that can further my career. I'm looking for a Jesus that can heal me or heal my loved one. I'm doing religious activity. I'm doing all this religious activity so Jesus, you can see it and bless me. Jesus, if you would just make something happen in this area, whatever that area would be for you, I'm interested. That's why I'm here. I'm interested not because of who you are, but mainly, Jesus, it's because of what you can do for me. I have my kingdom. I have my interests there. And Jesus, come and help me build it. You see, like Herod, I'm not giving up my kingdom. I'm not laying my kingdom and my treasures and my, my life down at his feet. I'm asking him to come and actually build and protect what I've already built and built. Jesus is an addition to my life to improve it. Herod was seeking Jesus and Herod would do whatever was needed to protect and further his own kingdom. And we must ask, just ask ourselves, am I looking for Jesus? Am I doing religious activity 
Not just because of who he is, but because I want to get something from him. That he protects me. That he protects my kingdom. That he builds it. Where am I doing religious things because I want to see Jesus come through for me? That's a good question to ask. Where am I, where am I involved in religious activity so that Jesus will come through? Where am I seeking him? Not because of who he is, but because of what he can do for me. Do I really only go to Jesus when I need something? These are difficult questions, but I believe one of the most important things we can look at as Jesus followers is the motivation as to why we're following Jesus. As you read through John, you see so many people following him for so many different reasons. And right here, we're contrasting three of them. And it's important to stop and ask, what are my motivations what are my motivations for my religious activity or for, for what I do, for what I believe? The second response in the story is that of the religious scholars, the Pharisees, the priests that he brings into this meeting. Herod asks them what they know about this king of the Jews and where he would be. And what they do? They quoted scripture. They'd been to Sunday school. They knew the answers. They said it with their lips, but it had tra- how, how did it translate to their actions? Did you ever think of this? Upon hearing that there was news that a sign had been given in heaven that, that the, there were the, the, the king of the Jews had been born. Well, let me just ask you this. How many nativities have you seen with flocks, dozens of Pharisees and religious experts bowing down at the manger? Why didn't they go to Bethlehem? They, they gave an answer of knowledge, but it did not translate into any action. They knew where it was going to happen, and they got news about it but we don't see any evidence of them arriving. They didn't bother to make the journey. There's no record of them. Now, they knew the facts, but it didn't change how they functioned in the end. They were content with their religious knowledge, but their religious knowledge did not lead to action. They had all the know-how, but we see right here, they didn't have the want to. Unfortunately, their head knowledge of Jesus was met with the most lethal thing in all of Christianity. Indifference. Indifference. They had this moment where they had knowledge. They knew it. And they got some information that where? And it didn't translate into anything. Again, we must pause and ask. It's important. And I I ask myself these questions. How many of us have some of this in us, in our faith? We have just enough knowledge We have just enough knowledge to know where we find Jesus or how we can follow Jesus, but it doesn't actually change our lifestyle. It it doesn't translate to our actions. We may know some verses, some parables. We may know like them, like, no, like, well, I know that verse or I know John 3, 16. I, I know some stuff. We attend church when we attend. We have knowledge of Jesus, but on the whole, there is a mild disinterest in truly putting forth effort in the devotion and putting it into action. The Pharisees in the Christmas story had the knowledge that never translated to action. And I had to ask myself this week, where are those places I have knowledge, but it doesn't translate to action? That's an important question. You see, we know God has told us to to, to love God, love people. And where is the evidence of that in our lives? Is there evidence? Is there evidence of that out in our community, in our offices, in our homes? And is our knowledge translating to action? The Pharisees had the knowledge, but they were not willing to inconvenience themselves. 
And how often are we like this? We have knowledge that, that God has called us to compassion and love and generosity. But as we go about our day, we don't want to be inconvenienced to pull over and help that person, pull aside and talk to that person. We know Jesus has called us to pursue and seek him in our personal life, outside of Sunday, outside of growth group. But it's often in such an inconvenience to seek him in his word or in prayer, to make the time for that. And I just want to say this, for many of us, it's not more knowledge we need. We really want to come up here, you know, to, to show up at church and get new, more knowledge. But for many of us, we're not yet obeying on the knowledge we already have. For some of us, it's not more knowledge we need. It's that our obedience doesn't measure up to the knowledge we have. We're high on information and low on inspiration. We have all the spiritual data that we've accumulated through our life, but, but we're low on spiritual devotion at some point in our lives, we've been enlightened with salvation, but we forgot that we're supposed to take that light somewhere to someone. Our obedience is not measuring up to our knowledge. For many of us, we don't need more knowledge. We need to start obeying what we already know to be true. The Pharisees and religious experts knew where the king of the Jews was to be born. They had the information, but they didn't make the journey. They would not inconvenience themselves. They seemed to be indifferent. When will, we, when will we be willing to be inconvenienced for the good news? During my day, to, to, to pull aside and, and, and turn off my radio and have some prayer, to, to seek him in his word, or to, to, to help somebody in need, when will I be willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of the good news I claim to believe? The third, the third response we have to look at is actually these, these pagan magi, which is so ironic. Their response to Jesus was curiosity and action. They come from the East. They've traveled a long way at great expense to themselves. This journey, pursuing Jesus, has personally cost each of them it costs money. It costs time away from family, time away from work. There's hardships. There's personal energy expended. And these are people of importance and power. We see that because they show up and they get to meet with the king right away. King Herod. They have influence. We know by their gifts they have great wealth. But in bringing gifts, you don't just load up a camel and go. I mean, I mean yeah, they would have to have a caravan. I mean, they would, they would, that requires servants and people to set up and tear down. They would have to have guards to protect the treasures, even the myrrh. I mean, they would have to have these things. They would have to have attendance for the animals. It would be a procession. They traveled a long way, and it took a lot of planning, and it took a lot of effort. They didn't know how long the journey was going to be. They just were going to follow it until it got to the end. They were willing to go. The Magi tape made a long journey, and it cost them. It cost them personally to do this. But they had a purpose and while the Pharisees and religious leaders seem dis disinterested, we see these magi as determined. They're determined to go and, and find this, this king of the Jews. The magi is such an anomaly in the Christmas account. I just want to say, what do we learn from them in this story? First and foremost, on the surface, we learn that, that God truly loves all nations and all races. God had a covenant with the Hebrews at this time. 
But then non-Hebrews from far away come on the scene and they're led by a star that can only be a gift from God calling them. That's the only thing it could be. God called them from far away to come to his son. God called these magis from, from, from far away to come to the feet of his son. And God still does this. God's still in the business of calling people who are far from him to come to his son. I've seen people who hated Christianity and through God's amazing love, receive miracles, receive signs, as bright as stars in their lives, calling them closer to come meet Jesus. God still does this. Jesus still does this. No one is too far from God. No one. No one is too far in sin from God's love. No one's too deep in any of that. And while he might not place a star in your life, he will place people in their life, people like you, to be a sign to point them to Jesus. He'll, he'll put circumstances and signs so that they will find and be called to meet Jesus, just like he did with these foreign magi, people far from God, physically and religiously, and he called them to come meet his son. Men and women, we look at these magi and their response to God, and we need to be challenged, I think. We need to be challenged. They rode who knows how many days or weeks to get here. I mean, how many of you, by show of hands, everywhere in the world, how many of you would ride a camel five miles to be here on Sunday morning? How many of you would ride five days on camel to be here on Sunday morning? Five weeks? Mom, I know you would, Mom. But I mean, like, how many of you would ride a camel for five weeks to come here to go to church? You know, we complain when the parking lot, and we have to park at the far end. These are foreigners in a strange land. They left jobs. They left families. They took time off. They took time off. They made time in their life to pursue Jesus. They made time to seek him. When was the last instance that you personally made time to seek Jesus outside of this building? That's an important one. It's challenging to me. This journey for the Magi, it was uncomfortable. A road trip back then is not like a road trip now. You know, nowadays, you, oh, I love road trips. You go to the gas station and you get those snacks you never get any other time. You load up on the spicy Cheetos, that, the, the beef jerky that's always in those plastic squares that everyone touches, a big, some drink, whatever you get. You listen to an audio book, you have a road trip playlist, you know, wind in your hair. We're doing it. You know, back then, that is not the way it went. You're on camel, you're on foot for weeks, and, and you're eating on the road, and there's nary a Cheeto in sight. I mean, talk about... This trip cost them. The pursuit of Jesus came at personal cost to them. And how did they respond? How did the Magi respond when they finally arrived? When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, they bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasures and presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Overjoyed. Overjoyed. These pagan priests had joy at finding Jesus, the Savior. They found him and they worshiped him. They found him as he was and they worshiped him. What was their posture in front of Jesus? They bowed low. And rich and powerful men in this culture didn't do that for a foreign baby. They adored this baby. And, and, and catch this. 
they haven't heard one sermon from this kid. They haven't seen one miracle from this kid. They haven't heard his parables. They didn't know, they don't know about a cross. They don't know about an empty tomb. They don't know about eternal life. None of that, which just makes me think we have so many more reasons to be worshiping Jesus authentically in our lives, don't we? We have the Bible, God's revelation of his nature. We, we know about the cross. We have an empty tomb. We have Christian radio. Like, what is our excuse? We have so many more reasons to bow before him in worship because of all that we know. Are you overjoyed at finding Jesus and seeking Jesus? Are we as a church, are we known as a, do we worship Jesus truly, authentically? Are we laying our treasures at his feet? Are we placing our lives before him? Today I want to ask you, which of these three do you most resemble in your life? Is your faith built on what Jesus can do for you? Is he an add-on in your life to build your kingdom? Is your faith built on a religion? And you're mildly disinterested in the whole thing, indifferent, and not wanting to be inconvenienced. Do you have the head knowledge, but no heart passion? Or is your faith, is your faith built on the desire to seek and pursue Jesus, no matter the cost? Where you open your treasures, you open your heart, you lay down your life for the King of Kings, Jesus, the one who sacrificed his life so that you could have authentic real life here on earth and eternal life someday. Is your faith marked by indifference or enthusiasm? What's the hallmark of your faith? Is your pursuit of Jesus out of convenience when it's convenient or is it out of conviction even when it's hard, even when it's inconvenient? Are we looking for him authentically, daily, in prayer and in the word? Are we following him even when it's not comfortable? Are we sacrificing anything like these magi did to go and find him? Are we seeing where he's at work and joining him there? The magi pursued Jesus and it cost them time, treasure, and their talent. And Herod, his treasures weren't open. His heart wasn't open. The religious leaders, their time wasn't open. They weren't gonna adjust to anything. Both these responses were people who were not willing to have a faith in Jesus that personally cost them or inconvenienced them. Now, I want to say one thing. These are three very hard questions, and these are some hard questions to ask. And I want, us to I want you to, to, in your own life, in communion, ask yourself where you might be uh, interested in a personal, uh, Jesus adding to your personal kingdom or where you might be indifferent. But I want to say one thing, Orchard. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. That, that through all the pandemic, through all the online, through all the times you were just online trying to worship with a computer screen or a phone or whatever, through all the shifting things, many of you have just continued to be here, to make the journey. And, and thankfully, it's not a camel you can drive. And, and thankfully, we can do. We have a privilege of gathering here today. But I just want to say I'm proud of you in that, that we have continued to do this. But in our own private faith, in those places that no one sees in this room, I want you to ask, where is it I'm indifferent? Where is it I have information in my head, but that my obedience is, is not yet met? Where is it I'm just disinterested? I don't want to be inconvenienced. 
And when you take communion, the first thing you do in communion is you thank Jesus for his shed blood and body. And then ask his forgiveness. Ask him to show you these places. Ask him for forgiveness. And then pray that prayer. God, help me to seek you in a new way. Help me to pursue you above all things. And as the band comes out and as we go into communion, I want that to be your prayer. The one last thing I want to say is this. Because others of us need to ask ourselves one very important question. Do I even know Jesus? And here's why it's important. Because maybe you're here or listening today and you're like the Magi. You consider yourself very, very spiritual, but you don't know Jesus. And just like these spiritual Magi, they needed Jesus. God shows us in this account that spiritual people need his son. They need salvation. They need someone to save them. That being spiritual isn't enough that Jesus Christ died. And so if you're here today and you realize you have a need for a savior or you've never made this decision to, to pray and receive Jesus, we, pray with me right now under your breath. Say, Jesus, I know you died. I know you rose again. I give you my life. Fill me with your spirit and help me to seek you authentically. In Jesus' name, amen. Orchard, Let's enter into communion and ask these questions. And then may we adore and worship the King. Amen.